Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome tonight's guests, co-authors of Mo Meta Blues, The World According to Questlove, available on the iBook store now, Ben Greenman and Amir Questlove Thompson. Okay, I was nervous. Thank you everybody for coming. Um, I'm Ben Greenman, I'm an author and a writer, and then this is the last thing I'll say about me, because we're here today to celebrate a book that I co-wrote with him. I have six themes, and for each one I'm gonna ask you a question, and I'm gonna suggest a story from the book, and then you can either take my suggestion or you can totally go off book and do any story that you want, but I've noticed some things that keep coming up as we've been talking about it. So, do you agree, click to agree to that arrangement? I agree. Okay. So the first thing that keeps coming up in the book is, is that you were a showbiz kid. You grew up in show business with parents who were entertainers. And I want to suggest the, the kiss story. And then, so talk a little bit about that. And, or you can substitute in a totally different story. The kiss story. Okay. Uh, he's referring to, to catch you up for those that aren't familiar. Uh, I had a father who was an oldies doo-wop singer, big in the 50s, disbanded his group in the 60s. Uh, By the time the 70s came along, he started the revival uh, doo-wop circuit, meaning uh, Tin Axe would play Radio City Music Hall or Madison Square Garden. Uh, Dick Clark would throw these shows. uh, And say the first three years, up until 73, 74. That was my father's life. Uh, from like 75 to 84, 85, uh, my father decided to leave that nostalgia circuit and start a nightclub act. And what would happen is, the way that we go to nightclubs now, like most of you will come and see someone DJ at a nightclub. Uh, well. Back in the 70s and 80s, DJ culture really, really didn't hit that, that strong. So they would hire nightclub backs. Uh, today you would know them as sort of like wedding bands or something like that. So my father developed a show that basically kept him at every resort, Atlantic City, Vegas, the Poconos, Catskills, any place where there was entertainment, casinos around. Kept my father busy 365 days a year. So the summer of 1979, uh, we're in Buffalo, New York, uh, at, 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 a, at a, an airport hotel. I think it was a Holiday Inn. For some reason, musical acts stayed at airport hotels, whereas now they stay in these five-star, you know, glorious hotels, designer hotels. Back then, if you were touring, You'd stay near the airport hotel. So it's about one in the morning, and uh, I'm thirsty. My sister tells me, get change off the dresser. Go get a, you know, a soda from a soda machine. I'm in a circular hotel. The, the, the hotel is a circle built. Uh, I get the soda, and then the door is open, and it's my worst nightmare come to light. It's the group KISS getting off the elevator. And um, for those of you that aren't familiar with 
kiss, think of like four demons <laughs> in human form. Like they wore makeup and most of you see them, their mask, they're still a strong Halloween seller. Uh, anyway, so these figures are in the elevator and I'm eight years old seeing this and I, I was so scared I just ran to the right but it's a circular hotel so I kept <laughs> I kept passing them <laughs> I kept passing them by in the uh, the hallway um, so they calmed me down in my hotel room after I like woke up half the floor at uh, 1.30 and my father being a diplomat he was uh, actually told me to get dressed out of my pajamas and took me down to uh, the, I, well, back in the, see, I hate saying back in the day because that really makes me sound old. There was a point at where hotel rooms had what they called game rooms. You know, now you have pay-per-view in your room, you could play video games on your television, but back then they had game rooms that had video games and stuff, and that's where Kiss held court, and it was like, members of KISS and their entourage, and then like 50 women. And then here comes uh, this tall Afro, six foot five black guy and his, his eight year old Afro son. And uh, I got autographs from them. And my father was trying to tell me that, you know, th that was just makeup that you saw, like they're, they're real human beings. And so, yeah, one night I met KISS at two in the morning at a Buffalo hotel. And when you say worst nightmare, I should point out in the book, it was a good worst nightmare, that you were, you were a fan. It wasn't, you, you were frightened by them partly because you were already a, a Well, I fan. find out with, with, with most kids, uh, you're often intrigued by what, what frightens you. I guess like for people that want this death-defying experience of a roller coaster or a haunted house or seeing scary movies, like you're, you're kind of intrigued by what scares you. Um, so I would obsessively uh, make a, a, a beeline to the K section anytime I went to a record store, which was often just to study their record covers because they were frightening or scary to look at. One of the other themes that keeps coming up a lot is that you, for most of your life, have been and, and promoted being part of a group or a larger collective. At the very beginning, uh, the Roots took as their model the Native Tongues Collective and the, uh, other hip-hop groups before you guys and that sort of idea, groups banded together. So you have the Roots as your main group, your group, but also the group of people around you. And then I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, or you can change this, the Solferians. Yeah. And, and that sort of, um, that era and how that term came to be. And it, it's, a, it's a great moment in the book for sort of, the outside media worlds need to brand you a certain way, not just you, but all entertainers. So how the Soquarian movement, how that started. Okay, so when the, when the Roots entered the hip-hop lexicon, you know, the first major boost that hip-hop received as far as commercial sales are concerned was when uh, Yo! MTV Raps debuted in 1988. Suddenly, what was a subculture, underground culture is now um, coming forth into uh, gold and platinum sales. And what's happening is uh, at the time that we entered, 
1994, um, what happened was that because of Dr. Dre's The Chronic, uh, which was basically the first credible, artistic credible hip hop uh, album or artist that had major, major sales, like any, any success in hip hop that happened before The Chronic that was multi-platinum, was usually like pop rap that wasn't really all that credible, you know. Um, I mean, not to take the entertainment value away from Vanilla Ice or whoever was selling 10 and 11 million at the time, but it wasn't something that you were like, that was, that was incredible. Um, so when The Chronic came out, then suddenly that just changed everyone's ambitions to sort of leave the art behind and, and gather the commerce. So because of us kind of being the, uh, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer of hip hop, our first two albums sold relatively well, but we weren't sticking. And my manager said that, you know, the only way for you that you guys will be successful, and he told this to our label, like, not only are you gonna have to invest in the roots for this third record, but you're also gonna have to create the, the contextualized fantasy of the Roots audience expectations. In other words, you know, Common is signed to a small label, Relativity. My label's gonna have to sign Common and take him out of his label and bring him to our label and pair us up. And then Erica Badu, bring her to our label. And then we're gonna basically have to form a family with like-minded artists, kind of like Noah's Ark, gather two of every animal. So. Starting in 1997, we devised a plan to have these like informal jam sessions uh, with, with the hopes of, of a payoff of starting a movement. And that's kind of what, what happened. So, you know, by 2000, by the year 2000, you know, Jill Scott, who was uh, just a, a former retail uh, clerk at a, at, a, at a clothing store is now Jill Scott. Uh, Eve, someone that we, who worked at a nightclub, she's now, you know, her own person. These are the people that were always constantly at our house. Music Soul Child was the pizza delivery guy. And like, Jamal, you deliver pizzas. Like, you, what, do you want to sing too? You know, and so suddenly all of these faces that were at my house every week for three years, suddenly had a place to hone their skills and, 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 and their craft, and suddenly now 17 record deals came out of Philadelphia. There's a great moment in the book that you mentioned, and then after the book came out, someone said, was that really true? And I thought, well, Amir told me, so it had to be true, but I'll ask you again. Did you have to call noise complaints in on your own home? <laughs> yeah, I called the cops on myself. Um, it, you know, I mean, at the time, I, I, I mean, in retrospect, I was like, wow, this is really, it's, it's literally a, a historical moment. You know, I mean, Beanie Siegel wasn't Beanie Siegel then. Freeway wasn't Freeway then. Bilal wasn't Bilal then. You know, Aries and Floetry and NDIRE and Mostef and Kwali. Like, none of these people were who they were. They were just regular people. And this was happening in my living room, so all I was concerned about 
was was beer on the floor and people putting out cigarettes on my my staircase and you know uh, noise complaints like these sessions would go on until two and three in the morning and um, you know my neighbors would kind of give me the dirty eye on Saturday morning so I would often make these phone calls <clears throat> yeah I'd like to uh, form a uh, give a complaint for uh, 2309 da 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 and uh, you know, the cops were like, wait a minute, looking at the number, like, Mr. Thompson, this is you calling, correct? No, it's not me, it's uh, Charles Smith. Amir, is this you? Okay, yeah, it's me, but don't tell the guys. Just come over here and stop the party. So th this, that would happen a lot. So eventually, it got too big for my house, and then by, like, 19, 1998, 99, we moved those jam sessions to wetlands, uh, up in New York on Sunday nights and then Tuesday nights at the Five Spot in Philly. And pretty much uh, it ran strong until about 2005 when there were no more musicians left because all of them <laughs> suddenly became professional. And even to this day, like half those musicians now work for Kanye, work for Justin, Jay-Z, Eminem. Like literally when you see any hip-hop luminary uh, working. The band behind them, I assure you, 60% of them were once 14-year-old little runts that used to run through my house that I tried to kick out, but now are, you know, are geniuses. Now, a lot of the book, uh, there's sort of two poles in the book. We've talked about them a little bit, but it's you as a member of a group, and then you sort of emerging as time goes on as an individual artist, talent, thinker, and a cultural tastemaker. And there are certain ways in which uh, technology has let you do this, Twitter, this kind of thing. But one of the technologies that let you emerge as an individual was DJing. And there's one really, to me, when we were writing the book, this is one of the most fascinating stories. And I wonder if you could tell a version of it when you were in England. And you, you said that there's one moment when you saw a certain DJ in England and this sort of set you down a certain kind of path in your mind for how to design a set, what the power was of that, of that action. And so just talk a little bit about Abishanti. that moment. Yeah, we, um, the Roots decided to sort of quasi-exile to London, England. Uh, we wanted to, quote-unquote, pull a Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix had to move to London, England to become big there first before he came back to the United States to get big. And the Roots had to do the same thing. We, we had uh, gotten an apartment, a flat, uh, a four-bedroom flat, move there and pretty much uh, stayed there until a good part of 1996, until we really became established in the United States. And, um, there was one night, uh, this DJ named Abashanti, he's a, he's a dancehall DJ from South Africa. And I'd never had a more religious experience in my life uh, when it comes to music. And he DJs inside this church with uh, bass cabinets the size of these pillars. Like the bass cabinets were at least 16 feet tall, like about as big as this screen right here. And uh, he only used one turntable. And it, he 
he used volume and bass and it was so deafening. Like people would have colonics. When he would turn the bass up, like people were just holding their stomachs. And you know, to anyone else, it would have been a nuisance. But my manager, Rich and I were just like, this is the future. Like we want everyone to hold their stomachs <laughs> when the roots play. So uh, as a result, we just changed our whole entire sonic approach. Um, I know for the record that The Roots are one of the, technically the loudest um, bands in music, simply because of all the noise ordinance violations that we've gotten and the citations that we've gotten. Uh, usually when people give performances, you're given a limit of maybe 117 dBs, uh, decibels. The roots sort of operate up into the 140 decibel, but it's not loud, it's, it's bass. And so bass registers as noise, even though you can't hear bass as you do high end, uh, it, it, it causes you to have a colonic. And so uh, ever since then, <laughs> my mission is to give people colonics. So it's entertainment plus you're performing a public service for them by giving them colonics. Keeping them clean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's a great story in the book because the, your description of that moment, just the theater of it, as you and, and Rich were, and the way he used silence and these little sort of back to the oh, audience Oh, yeah, but actually the best part of his presentation was the silence because that was the relief. He put a song on. First of all, you'd never see his face. So he's wearing like a preacher's robe. You're in a church. He's facing like the pulpit, and he does this like echo effect, Rast, uh, John Rastafari, and bunch of echo, and then next thing you know, he's like playing the instrumental, the uh, the version part of the 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 song, and he's turning all the bass down, all the mids down. You only hear the highs, and then people know what he's playing, and then he stops the record, and then he puts the mids on, and it gets louder. And then he stops the record. And then that, that, that 37 seconds of silence, people are already having fits because they know what's going to happen next. It's like getting to the top of that roller coaster and you know what's about to, what's about to go down. He flips the record over. He puts it on. And then you see his arm turn up all the bass. And then you're on your knees like, no, make it stop. But, but you're still there, so you love it. I want to go to audience questions. Hi, my name is Shara. Um, how did you come up with the name for your book? Mo Meta Blues. Um, well, Meta being self-referential. I mean, it's, it's based on Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues. Uh, but because of the, the structure of the book, uh, being a book about a book, and my footnotes actually having the, the footnotes actually have more logic and meaning than what I'm writing. Um, it just made sense, you know? And that's, the Mometa Blues, there's a part where Amir talks about the, the movie and sort of the, because there's a famous debate in that movie about young black music versus older music and when audiences, when they come out to see or what they're coming to see. So it was, uh, the title came with it, right? That was one of the, oh, like a Roots record. Yeah. Um, the intro of our fourth album, Things Fall Apart, uh, I included a dialogue from Mo Better Blues where 
Denzel Washington and Wesley Snipes is sort of arguing about the merits of black people not supporting jazz music anymore. And Wesley Snipes is like, you know, that's hogwash because you guys are so self-righteous with your jazz purist uh, nonsense that, you know, you've turned off the audience and if you play what they wanted, they come for you. And, you know, I just found that that argument uh, also relevant to, to hip-hop and parallel to hip-hop as well. So, um, yeah, there was sort of like a, a double meaning there. Hi, thank you for talking with us. Thank you. Um, so the, those jazz-like jam sessions you're talking about going till 2 or 3 in the morning, yeah. uh, and you, know, you can only kind of imagine the spirit in the room where you're seeing what works and what doesn't. It's just free uh, experimentation between great musicians. I'm wondering where else in your creative growth and journey have, has there been room for that kind of experimentation or just like free collaboration that stands, excuse me, that stands out? Um, I think the success to any, I think the, the success to any musician really just belongs in collaboration. I mean, if you look at Motown, Barry Gordy based the Motown system on a factory. So he has nine sets Nine, nine different sets of songwriters writing songs and building these catalogs up for the week and kind of uh, factory style, uh, similar to cars, you know, taking them apart and, and putting them together and then analyzing it, letting a jury decide if this is a hit or not a hit. Is it a hit? All in favor say aye. And, and it goes on. I, th I just think that the the history of music, you just really haven't seen an example of isolated success. Like, they don't even have to be a part of uh, a music, uh, they don't even have to be part of a musical movement. I mean, you, you could take, uh, okay, well, let's take Motel. You think Stevie Wonder, oh, well, you think, okay, well, I love Stevie Wonder, but you also have to notice that there's the Supremes, Temptations, Four Tops, Marvin Gaye, like they're contextualized in a family. If you say like, well, you know, I love the funk movement of the 70s. There was Parliament, Funkadelic, Rise of Funkenstein, Parlette, Bootsy's Rubber Band. All these people were a family unit contextualized together. Um, even today, I mean, there's, there's acts that you associate with the EDM uh, pop movement. There's acts that you associate with uh, the Swedish Disney pop set. You know, you pretty much there's there's no success in music today that's not contextualized with the movement it came with. One, once in a while, there's a one-hit wonder. Like it's not like the guys that did Macarena were down with Dr. Dre or anything. So <laughs> you know, so once in a while, there's a one-hit wonder that's isolated has to do with nothing, and they go in the one-hit wonder pile. But, you know. Hi, um, I just wanted to let you know I enjoy your music. Thank you. And I wanted to ask you, who came up with the name of your group, The Roots? That would be Tariq Blackthought Trotter, my uh, partner of the group. Uh, we met in high school 25 years ago. Uh, Tariq would have a tendency to name 
uh, our group. We've had a lot of names uh, since high school back in 87. So when we first, uh, God, I say to 87, half y'all looked at each other like, <laughs> that's the year I was born. <laughs> or I wasn't born yet. Um, yeah, when we started in 87, uh, uh, I believe our first name was Radioactivity, which probably was, was derivative of one of Tariq's favorite lyrics from his favorite MC, Cool G Rap. Uh, and then there was a period in 89 where everybody was militant Afrocentric, so we were black to the future. <laughs> and then um, for some reason he decided to reveal the world that we were the nerds we were and so we were initially called Square Roots um, but because of a, a copyright issue uh, with another local band in Philadelphia we couldn't be the Square Roots and so we just dropped the square and somehow the roots became more uh, symbolic without us even knowing it. So that's, that's how we, we became the roots. Hi, thank you for being here and talking to us. I'm right here. <laughs> oh, hey, there you go. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, just as music is evolving, ever-evolving, and you are evolving as an artist, um, what do you feel like you, from this point forward, are looking to contribute to this art form? Like, how do you want to shape your music and what you contribute to the, to the music scene? Um, I'm, in, I'm, in a, I'm, a, I'm at a place right now in my career where if you're looking at the pie structure, 15, 10, 15 years ago, music would have probably been sliced right down the middle, maybe 50-50, 50 being something else. And, 150 being music, um, but right now, um, I literally have 11 jobs. So, I teach at NYU, uh, I own a restaurant, I'm part of the Fallon Show, which will eventually be the Tonight Show. I wrote two books, uh, I'm scoring two films, I music, I, well, I do Amy Schumer's show for all the music on her show. Uh, my, my point being is that, uh, and I do music too, sometimes. Uh, but I guess my end goal uh, for music, to me, is, is just to stay the course. I think Maybe that's the one lesson that the Roots learned that most people didn't. Um, I talk about the, the, the VCR syndrome in the book. Uh, the VCR syndrome being uh, with Michael Jackson benefiting from the VCR for the first time in the early 80s, you were able to document his performances and his videos and study them over and over and over again. With Michael Jordan, he benefited from the VCR because that's the beginning of the viral movement. Or with Michael Jordan, it was the, 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 the highlight reel, I guess you could say. But the problem with the highlight reel mentality is that people think that, oh, I could do this all myself. So they isolate themselves and they go solo 
which is why now you have mostly solo acts. Like if you look at music, there's no group structure anymore. Like the roots are, are the last of a dying breed. So, um, you know, for us, it, if we want to do solo endeavors, we could do it, but we always come back home. So, you know, I, I would like to teach the importance of the group structure because people tend to think that, oh, I could be Michael Jordan and no one thinks like, well, Michael Jordan wasn't able to achieve those things without the, the four other team players with them. And so uh, I, I tend to think about community and family. There's also a moment early in the book when you talk about someone says to you, you're signing a record deal, and someone says, and buy your sixth or seventh album, and you or somebody in the band says, it, what? Hip-hop groups don't go to six or seven. Yeah, we, um, we, had, a, we had a deal that uh, when we first signed to our label, uh, which we're still on, uh, it was initially for nine records. And uh, it, was, it was too overwhelming to think that far in, in the future. You know, the, three records maybe, but four, like most hip hop acts fall off after their second record, their third record. Um, our 16th record will be out this September, and even, thank you. And even then, it's, it's like then, I, I couldn't imagine what 1999 would, would be like, back in 93. Like 99, oh my God, like I'll be, I'll be flying to, I'll be flying to work in my spaceship. Like that's what I thought it was. Now, I think in 99 now, it's like 1974 or something, ancient. How are you? I'm fine. Um, out of all your jobs, you have, you have about 11. Which is your favorite? Cliche answer, I love them all. However, I will say that I'm extremely satisfied and was probably the most intimidated with uh, accepting the, the teaching position at NYU. Because... Uh, the, the way that came about, I was, I was reading a, an NPR blog in which they were letting interns uh, who were somewhere between 17 and 19 years old review known classic albums. Um, and what I discovered was that for some reason, uh, what's assumed classic, like albums that were classic when I grew up, you know, let's... Well, the album that, in specific, was Public Enemies, uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. An album that I assume that most people, critics, have all claimed it as one of the greatest documents of hip-hop. Um, and this particular intern just had indifference with it. It's not even like he hated it. It was just like, eh, it's not Drake. Eh, it's okay. And I was like, ah! How could, you know? And, of course, you know, it, it, you, you can find out the, the scope of America's opinions when you read, like, comments, especially, like, YouTube comments or whatever, and everyone's browbeating them. And then I just, I wanted to join that fray of. <laughs> and I stopped myself from, from doing that, from responding, and I was just like, okay, this is, this is my fault. I've, I've been walking the earth all this time, gathering all this information, and now I can either just you know, follow the line and start browbeating this kid or I can do something about it. And um, I kind of wrote him a, a real passionate response in which uh, 
Jason Jackson, uh, my boss at NYU, read it and was like, okay, well, if you want to put your money where your mouth is, uh, there's an office with your name here. You, you want to be a professor? And yeah, I was like, okay, great, I'll do it. And then um, that was like a year before I took it. And then like a month before, I was just, I was losing sleep over it because it's easy to, you know, people that know me as a serial tweeter and I'm full of information and knowledge, but to sit there in front of 30 students and trying to convince them that this particular record of the week, you know, you, the, week, the week that I taught them about Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, you know, the, the class begins the same way. Who enjoyed the record, you know, at the beginning? And maybe six of them, of the 30, were like instantly like that. And I was like, well, who didn't like it? And then I was like, oh, man. I, I, I felt like uh, Johnny Cochran giving the, the last argument for OJ's life. And uh, I had three hours to do it. And, and miraculously, I did. You know, they, it took three hours, but they got it. And so I, 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 have, I have more satisfaction from knowing that there's 30 students walking around that now enjoy the nine records that I chose for them. So I'm probably going to do it again next year. The, the, uh, the story of you encountering Takes a Nation of Millions in the book is great, too, because everybody our age, or more or less the same age, I think remembers that record and just what a huge... That's one of the reasons that blog was so shocking. And, and so the story of you going to work, that's, that's a... Yeah, I was, I was uh, a teenager going to my first uh, real job that wasn't associated with my dad's uh, music show. And uh, I was like a short order cook for a, a fast food restaurant. And um, I got this cassette the morning it came out and it totally energized me. Like I felt like it was black music's first real punk rock moment. Rock music always had these outlets that, uh, you know, every teenager goes through an angst period or at least has a soundtrack for which they can get their aggression. And for black music, it's mostly dance music. Not, you know, dancing is a good way to let pressure go, but um, I don't know. Like, I, I, everything about my demeanor changed when this album just gave me energy. And by the time I got to side two, I mean, it, it was like a, a hit I had to have again. I kept running to Meat Locker, <laughs> taking little, like, two-minute snippets of, of the song, and Ah, and, and then I went on lunch break and I never came back. <laughs> and half that summer, I just I lied to my parents, like, yeah, I'm going to work. <laughs> and I just walked 20 blocks to the park and just sit there and listen to that record over and over and over again. And, um, you know, that's how it changed my life. It cost you your job, but it got you your career. So it worked exactly. out okay. I want to thank everybody and especially thank Amir for, for coming tonight.